You're listening to the Words of Hope, a ministry of Hope Church Trenton, Georgia. It's our prayer and mission to share the hope that can only be found in a relationship with Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Thank you for listening, and may you too find hope in Christ. Church, I'm going to ask you to open to the first chapter of the book of Galatians. I do want to reiterate what Bill says. We want our visitors to feel welcome, but more than that, we want you to know that you are welcome. Galatians chapter 1, we've started studying this book last week. Galatians may very well be the earliest letter of the New Testament that was written 15 to 17 years, a little more, a little less, after the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a fascinating letter about freedom. The theme of Galatians is freedom through Christ. We have been set free from bondage to sin, from the curse of the law and from the tyranny of religion. We are free in Christ. As we begin, I just want to read our passage this morning. We did open the letter with the greeting last week. We come to verse 6 of chapter 1. Paul writing to these believers, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we do come to you this morning and we pray for wisdom. We pray for the ministry of the Holy Spirit to work on our hearts and our minds as we look at your word. I pray that you would apply it to our lives, that you'd fill us with your spirit, that you'd do a work in our hearts. More than anything else, Lord, I pray that you would be glorified and you would be honored. I pray that sinners would be convicted, that they would be drawn to you, and that even today someone might receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and understand and know that He gave Himself for their sins as an offering, a righteous sacrifice, and it's to be received by simple faith. We honor you, we love you, we praise you. In the name of Jesus Christ. 
Amen. In July of the year 1780, a young officer in the Continental Army, Army of the United States was given a prestigious honor by none other than General George Washington himself. This young officer had already proven himself numerous times in the American Revolutionary War. He was named the commander, the commanding officer of the great fort at West Point, New York, one of the most strategic and important military strongholds in the American colonies. Despite his advancement, despite the honor that had been showed him, he felt slighted by Congress desiring to hold a higher office. Over the course of time, he began to share a series of correspondences with British agents, including John Andre, the leader of the British spies in the colonies. At one point, this young officer agreed to turn on the newly born American nation to defect from his military orders and his commission and to betray his country. For a large sum of money, he agreed to surrender the fort at West Point to the British without a shot ever being fired. The plan was set in motion, but at the last possible instance, it seems that American forces were able to capture John Andre and found on his person letters from this young officer that detailed the plot. John Andre was hanged, but this officer was able to get away. He defected to the British and he received a commission in the British Army as a brigadier general and took up arms to fight his countrymen. Later, he would move to Canada and then to England, and he would live out his life and die in infamy and poverty. His name was Benedict Arnold. We know that name, don't we? That name has become a byword for treason, for defection, for desertion, and treachery. None other than Benjamin Franklin said of Benedict Arnold, he said, Judas Iscariot betrayed one man, Benedict Arnold betrayed millions. Today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that warns us of spiritual defection, spiritual treason. It can arise in a local church any time, and Paul tackles that issue this morning in Galatians chapter 1. If you're following along on your outline, we're going to look at Paul's astonishment. This, I'll be open with you. This is a difficult passage, um, but it is also a beautifully put together passage because Paul is extremely exact in what he says. He is like a surgeon cutting to the heart of a problem. So Paul's astonishment, Galatians 1 verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So right at the outset in this letter, Paul gets right down to business. At this point, 
in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Paul's other letters. At this point, after the greeting, it's customary for him to offer a prayer for whoever he's writing to. I know that we looked at that a, a couple of weeks ago in the book of Colossians. He would offer a prayer. He would offer some sort of commendation. He would say something good about the people to whom he was writing. Not in Galatians. If you'll recall, the Galatians, shortly after Paul and Barnabas left, after elders had been appointed, Jewish Christians, people claiming to be Jewish Christians, infiltrated the church and they began to teach a different gospel. The gospel that the Galatians had received was Jesus is Lord. If you believe in Him, you are saved eternally from your sins. Born again, given new life, new eternal life. The message that these men brought was radically different. You'll recall they included ritual observances, keeping the Mosaic law and the rite of circumcision. In effect, they told these Gentile believers, if you really want to be a Christian, don't listen to Paul, listen to us. You have to become Jewish on the way to becoming a Christian. That's not the gospel. The gospel is whoever believes in him has eternal life, regardless of race, regardless of ethnicity. Eth you know what I'm trying to say. Regardless of whoever they are. I couldn't get that one out. Every nation, tribe, people, tongue, the blood of Jesus is sufficient to cover all. So Paul is astonished, and he opens up this book with this word, and the first thing he says, I am astonished. It's the word thalmazo. It means to, to marvel, to be amazed. It's the word that was frequently used to describe how someone felt when Jesus did a miracle. You'll recall in, toward the end of the Gospels, the last week of Jesus' life on earth, he came to the temple one morning in that week and there was a fig tree and he cursed the fig tree and the fig tree withered away. And he used that as an object lesson to his disciples about the nature of faith. Well, the disciples marveled at what had happened. I have a friend who uh, recently got back from a trip to the Grand Canyon and I have never been. Anybody been? Never been. I have heard that it is something to behold. And you can see all the pictures all day that you want to. You can see it on the movie screen. But nothing compares to being there yourself. You just stand in awe and marvel at what God has done. Paul uses that word here in the negative sense. I am amazed. Simply put, he's, he's flabbergasted at what these Galatians have done. This word occurs 44 times in the New Testament. Paul uses it here in a very unique way to describe something negative. It's used in 2 Thessalonians to describe the reaction of people at the return of Christ. People will marvel when Jesus splits open the heavens and returns in power and great glory. So Paul is astonished. He has been left speechless. He is amazed. What is he amazed at? Verse 6, that you are so quickly deserting him. 
He is amazed at the spiritual desertion of the Galatians. They received a gospel of grace, a gospel founded on the work of Christ and on Christ alone. And it just seems like in a few months, it can't be long because Paul writes this letter maybe a year and a half after the Galatian churches were founded. But it seems like overnight people showed up and they said, that's not really the gospel, don't listen to Paul, believe this. And they bought it. They bought it. Hook, line, and sinker. It amazes me that this happened in such a short time. And it does to Paul too because he says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him. That's the word for rapidity. It, it's happening fast. More and more of you are falling to this idea every day. Why is Paul so upset? You know, this is 21st century America. Can't we, can't we live and let live? Do we have to draw hard, fast lines over something as simple as whether the gospel is by grace through faith alone or is it grace plus a little works or grace plus a few more works? Do we have to draw a line? Yes. Absolutely. We have to draw a line. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. We don't play fast and loose with the gospel. We don't have the right. We don't have permission. 2 Timothy chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myth. In describing to Titus what kind of men that the elders of the churches should be, he tells them that the elder pastors of the church, elders and pastors refer to the same office, he said that they must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict. Do you think the gospel is important to Paul? Amen. By extension, should it be important to us? Yes. That's what this letter is all about. I have a question. The text doesn't answer it. Where are the elders of the churches of Galatia? Where are they? Where were they when these men came into the church and grossly distorted the gospel? They undermined the assurance of these believers. The churches of Galatia are now actively preaching a false gospel that cannot save if you're trusting in Jesus and your works, you're trusting in a house made on sand. Let's look at this desertion defined. 
I am so, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. The Galatian believers are in the process of defection, deserting, moving away from a clear foundation in the biblical gospel to something else. This is a military term. To desert means to turn away from your duty. And it was punishable by death in the Roman army. I think on paper it still is in the army of the United States of America. They were turning to a vastly different gospel, heeding the words of Jewish legalists. Here's a good question. What were they turning from? What were they turning from? Was it a religion? Was it, a, was it an ideology? Was it a philosophy? What were they turning from? Paul tells us, you are so quickly turning, you're so quickly deserting Him. They're not turning from an ideology. They're not turning from a religious position. They're not turning from... Some society, they are turning from a person, a divine person. Think of it. They traded a relationship with the eternal Lord of glory who created heaven and earth for a list of rules, regulations, and observances. Now, does that appeal to us? It's a trick question. Because deep down inside your heart, it does. We as human beings with a fallen nature desire to have something in the game. Grace is hard for us to receive. We want to say to God, I'll come so far, I'll do my part and you do your part and I get a little bit of the credit, but the gospel gives us no credit. Even the faith to believe is a gift from God. So they are turning from God. They're not turning from anything else but God. Who called them? 2 Timothy chapter 1, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. They are turning away from the one who has saved and called them, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. The Apostle Peter will say, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Do you realize that? In Christ, you have everything that you could eternally need to live a life pleasing to God through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. It is none other than God who calls us, none other than God who births us in Christ. And these Galatians are turning away from Him and taking up a false gospel of their own achievement. There are only two religions in the world. 
there have only ever been two. They come in a variety of flavors. There is the religion of human achievement. It's whatever you do, whatever mantras you observe, whatever rules you follow, whatever religious system you hold on to in an effort to gain merit before a holy God. It would include atheism. It would include secular humanism. It would include Islam. It would include Buddhism. Anything that sets itself opposed to Christ. So you have the religion of human achievement. On the flip side of that, there is the religion of divine accomplishment. And there is only one. Someone did the work for you. We are saved by works. They're just not ours. Jesus Christ took on flesh, was born under the law, fully kept the law. He is righteous, holy, spotless, blameless, and undefiled. And when a sinner trusts in Him, that righteous standing is credited to that sinner. That's the gospel. You don't have a part to play. Some religious rules not going to give you any standing with a God that holy. Won't work. Dear ones, if we would add works to the gospel in any way, we are abandoning the God who saved us. We are deserting. It's what Paul tells these Galatians. You are so quickly deserting Him. We are deserting Him and walking of, away from a faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So they had a distorted gospel, a distorted view of the gospel. Not only were the Galatians turning from this holy, gracious, loving God, they were turning to something. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. It's an interesting term here, different gospel, heteron euangelion, different good news. We understand the word heteros, don't we? It means different, another of a different kind. We get heterodox from it. We get heterosexuality from this word. It describes another of a different kind. Paul is creating a play on words in this passage. And he says, you are turning to a gospel of a different kind, but it's nothing like the original gospel. It's not the same thing. You are deserting Christ and you are turning to a hetero gospel, a pseudo gospel, a false gospel. It's not another version of the gospel. It's something radically, completely different. It's a cheap counterfeit. This was not a minor adjustment. This was not a difference over spiritual gifts or a view of end-time events. This, this took to the heart of the biblical gospel itself. You cannot tweak the gospel. 
You don't perform minor adjustments on the gospel. There is one gospel, one gospel alone. Anything other than that gospel is a cheap counterfeit. Doesn't that seem harsh? Seems a little harsh, doesn't it? Everybody's going, oh. Paul would later tell the Corinthians, and if there was ever a church that could break a pastor's heart, it was the Corinthians. It says to them in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. That's a wedding metaphor. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit than the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Speaking to those who taught this, Paul said, for speaking of them rather, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise that if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. Do you think Paul is serious about this issue? I think he's dead serious. If a church proclaims a false gospel, here's why it's so serious. If a church proclaims a false gospel, then people are not coming to the true Christ. Genuine faith in Christ, they are not being made right with Him. People are not being saved. The gospel is the power of God to save sinners. Works of the law, religious observances, and rituals have no place in the gospel. If we are preaching a false gospel, we are giving people a false assurance. We are telling them that if you will believe and you can be right with God, and they go out and they try to perform the and. And what do we find out? We find out that we are still sinners. That we have no power to curtail our sin nature. We can't put it in a box. We can't control it. We can't say no to it. And what they discover is they can't live the Christian life because they are not Christians. They do not have the Holy Spirit living in them. So the danger... If a church ever goes down the road of proclaiming a gospel of works. Is that they will convince people that they are in a right relationship with our holy God when they are not. Is that dangerous? Yes. Nothing in this world is as dangerous. Nothing in this world is as evil as that. People's eternities are at stake. Woe to us if we don't preach the gospel. The true gospel. 
Paul tells the Galatians, speaking of those who were trying to be justified before God by their works, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, period. But through faith in Jesus Christ, so we also have believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Then he repeats himself for added measure, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You aren't declared righteous by what you do. You are declared righteous by what Jesus has done and you have received him by faith. That's where righteousness comes from. Let's look at a double curse So we move on to verse 8. This is a unique portion of Scripture. Paul speaks of those, he says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul doesn't leave anyone out, does he? First he says, if we, and who does he mean by that? The apostles. Specifically, Paul and Barnabas. You remember during the first missionary journey, they went into Galatians. They preached the gospel, a gospel of free grace in Christ. The Galatians received that. They set up churches. They appoint elders. They leave. Paul tells them, if even we show up and preach a message that is contrary to the one you received at first, let us be accursed. The word is anathema. It's a compound word. It's to lift up and present means to pledge, to offer up, to devote something. And the sense that it is used here, it's to be devoted to destruction. Like in the Old Testament sense. Like devoted to destruction. Then he gets hypothetical. If we or an angel from heaven... Now, we understand angels from hell in false gospels, don't we? We get that. We get doctrines of demons. We understand that Satan hates the gospel, that he has blinded the eyes of believers, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. But Paul says, if an angel from heaven comes down in bright blazing glory. Gabriel or Michael shows up here one day and they preach a gospel contrary to the gospel of free grace in Christ. Let them be accursed. Interesting, isn't it? Later on he will button it up and say, if anyone is preaching a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So no one is left out. No one gets to show up and preach another gospel. No one has the authority. Paul doesn't have the authority. Barnabas doesn't have the authority. Peter, James, John, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Billy Graham, the Pope, or Elvis. None of them have the authority to preach another gospel. They don't. Oh, dear. I didn't plan that. 
I do find it interesting that all the major cults and false religions that cover the world now have their genesis in an angel showing up and telling someone something. The angel Gabriel supposedly appeared to Joseph Smith and gave him the Book of Mormon. And while we love people, we understand that the Mormon gospel is a gospel of works that cannot save. The angel Gabriel, it is claimed, also showed up to Muhammad, gave him the tenets of Islam. It's a recurring theme here. If an angel shows up, and if they're claiming to be the greatest of angels, Gabriel or Michael, and they say that you are made right with God by anything other than faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone, they are to be cursed. Galatians is a bumpy ride, isn't it? But what does a cursed mean? It means devoted to destruction. I do want to point out something. And this is important for us. Let him be accursed is in the passive voice. Meaning, we don't do the cursing. They are under the wrath of God already. We don't have to curse them. He says, let them be accursed. Take your hands off. Step away. Don't give them room to spread their false gospel. Constantly show them the truth. We don't do any cursing. What Paul is saying is difficult. It's incredibly strong and it might seem harsh. But what he is saying is that those who actively distort the gospel of Jesus Christ and spread a false gospel that does not save are set apart for eternal destruction. Let's look at a final appeal. Galatians 1 verse 10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. One of the chief criticisms that the Galatian heretics leveled against Paul was that he was a people pleaser. He showed up in town preaching this message that if you just believe in Jesus, you'll be saved. You don't have to follow the law. You don't have to do all the ritual observances. That's too easy. Paul is just trying to rack up a large number of converts. He's in it for the money. And sometimes if you read in the white spaces of your New Testament and look at really what's going on, they accuse him of doing what he does for favors from women. That's the accusations that are made. Paul blows that up. I think after this paragraph, I don't think they feel like he's a people pleaser. Do you? He's just said that he is astonished that they are deserting Christ. He has put the false teachers under a double curse. Later on, he's going to call them fools. This letter is laced with sarcasm. 
He's not interested in what their opinion of Him is. He was not building a religious empire for himself. He was not interested in their accolades. If Paul is a people pleaser so far in Galatians, he has done a poor job of it, hasn't he? This book challenges. It causes us to repent. It causes people to admit their sin. Paul is far from a people pleaser. He is a servant of Christ. And one thing that I found fascinating about this letter, it's all about spiritual freedom, right? We've been set free from bondage to sin. Paul uses the word, if you look, um, I would not be a servant of Christ at the end of verse 10. Some of you will have bond servant, others will have servant. But the word is the Greek word doulos, it's the word slave. Slave. One bought by another who is owned, who is duty-bound to obey his master. It's fascinating that Paul points out that he is a slave of Christ because a price was paid for him. One of the things that we're going to wrestle with through this letter is, yes, we are set free in Christ, but it's not freedom to abuse that liberty. We're not called to live in lawlessness. Jesus Christ sets us free from bondage to slavery, from bondage to the law, and from bondage to religion. But we are enslaved to Him. We have been bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. As I said a week or two ago, we're not free agents. We're not antinomians. We belong to one who we owe our allegiance, don't we? So what? I know this is a difficult passage. I have some takeaways that I think are very beneficial for us. Some principles that at this point in the life of Hope Church would be very healthy for us. Number one, a different gospel must always be confronted. Must always be confronted. To distort the gospel that the church proclaims is the chief work of the enemy of this age. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God, who is the image of God. We must stand against any addition to the gospel, faith and we must reject any subtraction to the gospel. Jesus is not who He claimed to be. We must repudiate any adjustment or tweaking of the gospel. Believe and be circumcised. Believe and be baptized. Believe and follow all the rules. The gospel of Jesus must remain pure. What is that gospel? We, we talk about the gospel all the time. What is that gospel? Paul will tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and the first 11 verses. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. You want to know what the gospel is? Here it is. 
The gospel that I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. In context there, he's talking, later he's going to talk about the resurrection. And he's going to say, you believed in vain if Jesus wasn't resurrected. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared. He appeared. All according to the Scriptures. He died, He was buried, He was raised, He appeared. That is the heart of the gospel. How do we receive the benefits of the gospel? It is through faith. Faith alone in Christ alone. Number two, a different gospel must be corrected. Could not shy away from the words in Titus chapter 1. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. That's exactly who the Galatians were up against. They must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by His appearing and His kingdom preach the word be ready in season and out of season reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. A different gospel has to be corrected. And I want to show you two examples of this happening in the New Testament. One where it does happen, one where it happens and the results aren't what we would want. The first example is in the book of Acts. Turn with me to Acts chapter 18. Verse 24, during Paul's missionary journeys and a man named Apollos comes to Christ. We don't know what he was saying, but there was something about the gospel that he was preaching that didn't line up with Scripture. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, being fervent in the Spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John, meaning he had been a a disciple of John the Baptist. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him they took him aside and explained him the way of God more accurately and when he wished to cross to Achaia the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him when he arrived he greatly helped those who through grace had believed for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus so he had an inaccurate gospel and two people in love 
corrected that gospel, that false gospel, and the purveyor of that gospel went on to preach powerfully and people were saved. Isn't that the gist of the story? There is something that I want to point out that's interesting about Priscilla and Aquila. This is the first century Roman world and women weren't typically involved in this sort of thing, were they? No. Luke is very deliberate. Priscilla is mentioned first. Is that out of order of the way things normally would have been done? I think so. You know what that tells me? That tells me that she has an active role in this correcting and discipling herself. I did not mean to get here, but here we are. We understand that there are gender roles, right, in the church. That does not mean that the difference between men and women is that women are less qualified for ministry. They are not. You are not because you are a woman. Priscilla shows us that. I'm committed to the teaching of the Scripture that says that the elders of the church should be biblically qualified men, but we do not believe that women have no place in ministry. That was not part of this sermon. We got there. Here we are. All right. So they correct him, and the gospel moves forward. Now turn to 2 John. This is what happens. This is what we were called to do when there is no correction. Verse 8 of 2 John. Watch yourselves that you may not lose what you have worked for, but may win a full reward. Now that's not talking about salvation. It's talking about reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. What is John saying to us? He is saying that those who persist in spreading a false gospel that we do not give them a platform. In the first century Roman world, itinerant preachers would travel around and they would be welcome into people's home to give them room and board and to, to, to pr provide for them while they shared their message. He's not talking about being a jerk for Jesus. It's not what, what he's saying. He's saying that when people come and they have... A clear-cut false gospel that we do not help them spread that message. We do not help them do that. We actively oppose that. Beloved, when a distorted version of the gospel is being shared, we are not to support it in any way. And we can be gracious and we can be loving, but we cannot ever compromise and support the spread of a false gospel. We all know people who are dearly loved, who are kind and gracious 
and great people who are involved in movements that we would deem not gospel movements. Is that true? Yeah. That is true. Doesn't mean we don't love them. Number three. And this is at the point where you're off the hook and I'm in the hot seat. Spiritual leadership must be accountable. In the book of Revelation, John records seven letters to seven churches that were dictated to him by Jesus. One of those letters is written to the church at Ephesus, which is not very far from the Galatian churches. And in that letter, Jesus says to the believers at Ephesus, I know that you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Well, how did that happen? How do we move down a road where Jesus looks at a church and says, you know, you don't love me like you used to? In the book of Acts chapter 20, 30 years prior to this letter being written, I think we have a clue. Paul meets with the leaders of this very church for one last time. One last meeting. Paul knows he's headed to Rome. He knows that he's never going to see them again. And he knows that he is headed toward his death. And he says to these very men, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. What happened at Ephesus? Yeah. Spiritual leadership caved. The loss of love began with the elders of the church. They refused to stand for the truth of the gospel. They refused to cause, call people to repentance. And the end result of that was a church that was no longer in love with Jesus. These words are sobering. Elders, overseers, pastors are called to be a certain kind of person, a certain kind of man. Titus tells us what they are. Paul says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict. For there are many insubordinate talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain, the money, what they ought not to teach. Beloved, the gospel is always under attack. It's always going to be under attack. It is an effort all the time to keep the gospel pure, to keep it clear, and to ensure that we proclaim it accurately as we should. Spiritual leadership must be held accountable for how they lead. Let me rephrase that. 
Spiritual leadership must be held accountable for how we lead. And we must be held accountable to fulfill the mandate of teaching sound doctrine and rebuking false doctrine. Is that a fair statement? Here's another fair statement. You are, in, you are accountable to ensure that we do that. You are accountable. As one of the elders of Hope Church, I have a sacred obligation. And I know that Christian and Bill and Luke feel the same way, that it is a sacred duty uh, to shepherd the flock of God, to serve. We can't equivocate on that, on the calling to protect and the calling to share the gospel and to correct error. We can't turn a blind eye to it, and I don't have the right to do that. One of the greatest weaknesses in modern evangelical Christianity, if, if that's what we still call it. I don't, I don't know the latest thing. It's an ever-changing target. Evangelicalism, Protestantism, whatever we are, Christians. One of the greatest weaknesses right now is a basic weakness in leadership. Yes. Do y'all get that I'm calling me out? There is a trend to be cool and hip, and I get that. And, and, and it, in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with that. But that leads us down a road if we just give ourselves completely over to that, where we have a lot of nice things to say and we never confront error and we have an overwhelming desire to be woke and the trend is moving in a way that puts a premium on topical teaching um, and it focuses on felt needs and how to have a good life and how to have a good marriage and how to deal with anxiety and how to follow God's financial plan and uh, that's good, that's good, that's great. But one of the greatest lies on the planet is that you can have your best life now. It's the title of a great book that I would not recommend you read. The only way that you can have your best life now is if you're going to hell. Does that make sense? But this trend, it calls us to give ourselves to things and neglect the purity of the gospel. And I am convinced that there is a basic lack of strength. And I'll just say it. We're all family here, aren't we? There is a basic lack of biblical manliness in the pulpit. That's the truth. You have the right, you have the right to demand that the leaders of the church uphold the truth of the gospel. I don't know how long I'm going to be here. I don't know how long I'm going to live. I don't want to ever do anything than what I'm doing right now, but if 25 years from now I'm still here and you're still here 
And one day I come in and I preach to you a gospel contrary to what this book teaches, then remove me. If the elders won't, remove them. It's that simple. We must contend for a pure gospel. We must contend for a pure gospel. That's Paul's thrust in Galatians. Um, if the worship team would come back, we'll get ready to close. We must contend for a pure gospel. And I know that this has been heavy. I get it. But it's the path that's laid out for us in Galatians. We're going to get to, to the spiritual walk later and the wonderful truths of, of being filled with the Spirit and being freed from all the things that we are freed from. But Paul starts this letter out with a double condemnation to those who pervert the gospel. And I would neglect my duty if I did not present that in the way that Paul presented it. The purity of the gospel is important. If you don't know Christ, may you believe that gospel today. Jesus loves you. He lived for you. He lived for the glory of God. He lived in perfection. He died the death of a sinner bearing your sins. And if you will believe in Him, trust in Him, God will forgive your sins, give you eternal life, a righteous standing with Him, adopt you into His family and give you eternity forever. Isn't that good news? Let's pray together. Father, we thank You so much for Your grace, for Your mercy, for Your peace. I pray for Hope Church. I pray that we would stand on the truth of the Word of God and that we would never move, never move from a gospel of grace from a gospel that's focused on Jesus Christ, that we would never be those who desert, who change our focus, who stop preaching the grace of Christ and start preaching a salvation by works. May we share the love and truth of the gospel with those whom we meet. May you be glorified. May you be honored in the people and in the life of Hope Church. I ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hope Church, may you be blessed. I believe that God is speaking to us from Galatians because He speaks from His Word and it will not return to Him void. So go into this world in peace and have courage. Hold on to that which is good. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering and share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us all. Amen. You are dismissed. Have a great day. The elders will be down front. We would love to talk with you, to pray with you. You are loved and sent.